Blog Talk Radio. Stevie B's Media Production is a part of the Shellcaster Network. The proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ by members of the Churches of Christ. With your host, Stevie R. Butler. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Thank you for tuning in to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Your host this evening is Stevie R. Butler. And my co-host is Tim Bitch from the state of Texas. Glenn McMillian from the state of Texas. Courtney Carruthers from the state of Illinois. Steve Corder from the state of Illinois. Dr. Frank Washington from the state of Florida. Clay Phillips from the state of Georgia. Brian Christian Coleman from the state of New Jersey. And Robert Lee Johnson from the state of Florida. We're grateful, ladies and gentlemen, that you're tuning into our radio broadcast this evening. This radio show is being brought to you by loving and faithful members of the Churches of Christ. We ask you to take out your Bibles and study along with us. We have a very exciting show planned for your spiritual enlightenment and your edification. If you'd like to contact us while we're on the air this evening, just give me a call to the live show at 713-955-0508. If you have any questions or comments for any of my co-hosts, you can send your emails to my new email address, butlersteve1009 at yahoo.com. Or you can give me a call at Stevie B Media Production Studio at 910-491-6405. Now, again, this program is brought to you by members of the Churches of Christ. And if you need any assistance in locating a congregation in your area, please feel free to contact us. Now, folks. Get out your Bibles and stand along with us here on the Gospel Live radio show. You're listening to the Gospel Light radio show. Before we go into our program for this evening, I would ask that you would bow with me in a word of prayer that we may thank God for this opportunity. Our most kind, gracious, loving, heavenly Father, the Father, Lord, and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for allowing us to go through the various activities of the day and placing it on our hearts that we are on this broadcast and we are prepared now to present a portion of your holy and divine word. Father, we praise you will be my co-hosts, Frank Washington and Courtney Carruthers, on the show this evening as they break unto us the bread of life. And also my co-host, Tim Bench, as he answers the questions that are on the hearts of so many. We pray that you will bless them and their families that support their efforts that they may continue to sow the seed 
of the kingdom. Father, we pray that you will bless our listeners who are tuning in through Blog Talk Radio as well as through social media. We pray that they may listen well and that their hearts may be pricked as they consider their eternal stance before you and their soul salvation. And it will cause them to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? Father, we thank you so much for sending your only begotten son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, to die such a cruel death on Calvary's cross. We recognize that without such a sacrifice, we would not have a hope of eternal life. Father, even now, we ask that you'll forgive us for the transgressions of our own heart. We know our flesh is weak, and we often fall short of your will. Father, we pray that you'll continue to bless us and keep us in love with us all the days of our lives. And if we have been faithful until death, Father, we pray that you would save us. For it's in Christ's name we do ask it all. Amen. You're listening to the Gospel Length Radio Show. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning into the broadcast. Our speakers for this evening in the first segment, my co-host, Dr. Frank Washington. He serves with the West Broward Church of Christ there in Plantation, Florida. He'll be making this proclamation of the gospel of Christ. And in the second segment, I have a question from my shouted out platform on social media, Facebook. I'll be posing to my co-host, Tim Bench. He serves with the Oham Lane Church of Christ there in Abilene, Texas. And also to close out the show, my co-host Courtney Carruthers. He serves as the evangelist for the Colonial Village Church of Christ there in Chicago, Illinois. He'll be making his proclamation of the gospel of Christ to close out the show. So open up your Bibles and open your minds and let's have a great show. After the break, next voice you hear be that of my co-host Dr. Frank Washington. Enjoy the show. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Let it shine 
listening to the gospel light radio show give your attention to the proclamation of the gospel of jesus christ now my co-host dr frank washington and his subject grace good evening ladies and gentlemen thank you so much for uh, tuning in tonight I'm glad that I'm going on before Brother Tim Bench and uh, Brother Courtney Carruthers uh, because those are some dynamic uh, men of God. So I'm glad I'm going on first. Um, so let's get to the to the lesson tonight. In Ephesians chapter two and verse uh, beginning at verse number eight, I'm sure you all know what that means by heart. That is for by the grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. A man visited a woman he knew to be in great financial need. He visited with a generous he visited with a generous gift to help her with her expenses. He knocked at the door, she heard the knock panicked, and hid so no one would know that she was home. The next weekend, uh, he told her about the purpose of his visit. But she said, I heard you knock, but I didn't realize it was you. I thought it was my landlord collecting the rent I couldn't pay. Now let that sink in for a moment. This man came desiring to give but she mistook him for someone coming to take. So often God is mistaken as one looking for something from people. When the fact of the matter really is that he is the one giving gifts to people. Now, so many preachers in the world today are geared to think that Here is what you must do for God. But scripturally, that's flipped. 
Our message today is here is what God has done for you, and that's grace. He's dead, or Paul says faith alone saves. But today's lesson is about grace. The term grace is used a lot, but is sometimes very misunderstood. Grace is divine help and strength that we receive by way of the death of Jesus on the cross. Uh, One of the greatest and most popular songs in Christendom is Amazing Grace by John Newton. It is indeed a sweet sound that saves a wretch like me. But in Titus 2 and verse 11 says, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Jesus, the progenitor of grace, gives us reason for procuring grace for us. It is to bring salvation to humanity. Let me ask you a question. We all have received gifts at one point or another. Now, upon receipt of a gift, what does a gift imply? Well, a gift in the non-theological context is actually a way to invest in a relationship. It can be a social lubricant to uh, become a better husband, a better wife, child, employer, or just a better person. A gift is different than a loan because a loan requires repayment by the recipient. But in the theological context, the gift we receive is called grace. Grace is the essential part of God's character, God's benevolence, his love and mercy. And in God's grace, God is willing to forgive us and bless us in spite of the fact that we don't deserve to be treated so well. Is a gift means that nothing is owed in return. Are you living a graceful life this evening? Well, In order to fully comprehend grace, we must consider first to who we are without Jesus Christ, and then who we have become. Now, in Ephesians 2 and 8, the statement made parenthetically in verse 5 is repeated, explained, and expounded. So why can the life of heaven be possessed here and now? How is there such an exhibition of the love of God from which The whole creation of God can learn and wonder because by grace you have been saved. Now, this salvation is God's work entirely, infinite love. The human part in receiving it can be described simply by the words through faith. Uh, If you look at Romans 3.22 and 25, Galatians 2.16, 1 Peter 1 and 5, and this faith, is defined best as a turning to God with a sense of need and weakness and emptiness and a willingness to receive what he offers, to receive the Lord himself. Now, anxious to emphasize with crystal clarity the nature of this faith and the nature of grace, Paul, by his qualifying phrases in this verse and the next, excludes the possibility of anyone obtaining this salvation by any merit or self-effort. First, he adds to this statement of salvation by grace through faith the words, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Now, 
times this has been taken to refer to faith itself being only possible by God's gift. Well, if we take if we take it that way, we would need to regard the second part of verse 8 as a parenthesis, since verse 9 must refer to the salvation and not to faith. It seems better, however, especially in the light of the parallelism between verse 8 and 9, not your own doing, not because of works. So to take all the qualifying clauses is simply emphasizing salvation by grace. Now, What the apostle wants to say here is that the whole initiative and every aspect of the making available of this salvation is God. God is the gift, is the rendering that shows best the emphasis of the word order in in the Greek. Now, it says, let a man be abandoned by God, and he is absolutely hopeless. It is the voice of God that arouses, that awakens, that causes a man to think and inquire. It is the power of God that gives strength to act. It is the same power which makes provision for the need of the new life. Now, in verse 2, verse 8 through 10, the definite article appears before the word grace here, pointing the reader back to the same statement in verse 5 and informing him that the writer is to elaborate upon this previously mentioned statement. The reader of this exposition is urged to go back to the exegesis of verse 5 and refresh his memory as to the total meaning of Paul's statement, by grace are you saved. Now, the words through faith speak of the instrument or means by whereby the sinner avails himself of this salvation which God offers him in pure grace. Paul never says through the as if the faith were the ground or procuring cause of the salvation. The commentator Alford says, it, the salvation, has been effected by grace and apprehended by faith. Now, the word that, depending on your translation, is kautu. doesn't mean much. Just remember that. But this, a demonstrative pronoun in the neuter gender. And the Greek word faith is feminine in the gender that therefore kautu could not refer to faith, meaning that does not refer to faith. It refers to the general idea of salvation in the immediate context. Now, the translation reads, and this not of out from you as a source of God. It is the gift. That is, salvation is a gift of God. It does not find its source in man. This salvation is not out of a source of works. This explains salvation by grace. It is not produced by man nor earned by man. It is a gift from God with no strings tied to it. Now, Paul presents the same truth in Romans 4, 4, and 5. When speaking of the righteousness which God imputed to Abraham, where he says, now to the one who works, his wages are not looked upon as a favor but as that which is justly or legally due. But to the one who does not work, but believes on the one who justifies the impious, his faith is computed for righteousness. One reason why salvation is a free gift of God and not earned by works is given to us in the words, lest any man should boast. God glorifies, or grace glorifies God. Works would glorify man. 
for commenting on the words, for we are his workmanship, Vincent, another commentator, says, a reason why no man should glory. If we are God's workmanship, our salvation cannot be of ourselves. Most expositors uh, uh, usually comment, we ourselves are a work, the handiwork of God, made anew by him, and our salvation, therefore, is due to him. Our salvation is due to him, not selves. So the words created in Christ Jesus unto good works says here, a further definition of his workmanship. We are God's spiritual handiwork in the sense that we were created by him, made a new spiritual creature by him when his grace made us Christian. This new creation was in Christ, so that except by and, and, and so that except by that union between him and us, it could not have taken place. It also was a view Two good works. We ourselves, when having been created anew by God, and good works being the object to which that new creation looked, not the cause that it led to, all must be of grace, not of deeds. And there can be no room, the Bible says, for boasting, because we were created in Christ Jesus for good works. And these good works are described by those good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. There's another commentator by the name of Vincent who says, God prearranged the sphere of moral action for us to walk in. Not only are works the necessary outcome of faith, but the character and direction of the works are made ready by him. Before he created us in Christ, by our, con- our, by our conversion, he had destined these good works and made them ready for us in his purpose and decree. So these uh, good works, these good works were prepared before the good works in them. The word walk uh, in, the, in the Greek means to regulate one's life, to conduct oneself, to order one's behavior and them, the word, the phrase, them, or these, that good word, located of the spirit. We will order. We ought to order our with fear of these good words. Now, God's upset, which he gave or made his decree, was that they should actually and habitually be done by the new creation. His final object was to make good works, the very element of our life, the dominion in which our actions should move, that this should be the nature of our walk because of grace is implied in our being, his handiwork made anew by him uh, in Jesus Christ. Now let's digress. Let's go back to verse four because verse four begins with a mighty uh, adversity by saying, but God. Now, those two monosyllables set against the desperate condition of fallen mankind, the glorious initiative and sovereign action of God. We were the objects of his wrath. But God, out of the great love which uh, he loved us and had mercy upon us, we were dead and dead men don't rise. But God made us alive with Christ. 
We were slaves in a situation of dishonor and powerlessness. But God has raised us to set us at his own right hand in a position of honor and power. This God has taken action to reverse our condition in sin. It is essential, my friend, to hold both parts of this contrast together, namely that we are by nature and what we are by grace. The human condition and divine compassion, God's wrath and God's love. Christians are sometimes criticized for being morbidly preoccupied with their sin and guilt. But the criticism is not fair when we are facing the fact about ourselves. For it's never healthy to look reality in the face, but only when we fail to go on to glory in God's mercy and his grace. We need now to inquire exactly what God has done and why he has done. What has God done? In one word, he has saved us. In both verse 5 and verse 8, the same assertion is made. By grace, you have been saved. Now, some theologians have even suggested that verse 4 through 10 are kind, or are a kind of hymn celebrating the glories of salvation and of sola gratia, which is twice interrupted by the liturgical acclamation, by grace you have been saved. But saved is a perfect participle. It emphasizes the abiding consequences of God's saving action in the past. As the Paul would say, you are people who have been saved and remain forever saved. Now, a lot of people today are saying that they find traditional salvation language meaningless. So we need to probe into what Paul really writes about and his mindset when he wrote it. So, in fact, he coined, Paul coined, three verbs, which take up what God did to Christ, and then, by the addition of the prefix sin, together with, link us to Christ and those events. Number one, God made us alive, together with Christ, verse number five. Next, he raised us up with him, verse number six, A. And third, he made us sit with him. In the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, verse number six. Now, these verbs, made alive, raised, and made to successive historical events in the saving career of Jesus, which are normally called what? The resurrection, the ascension, and the secession. Now, what excites my amazement is that now Paul is not writing about Christ, but he's writing about us. He's affirming not that God quickened, raised and seated Christ, but that he quickened, raised, and seated us, you and me, with Jesus Christ. Now, fundamental to New Testament Christianity is this concept of the union of God's people with Christ, what constitutes the distinctness of the members of God's new society. What is it? Well, not just that they admire and even worship Jesus, not just they assent to the dogmas of the church, not even that they live by certain moral standards. No, 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 no. What makes them distinctive is their new solidarity as a people who are in Christ. By virtue of their union with Christ, they have actually shared in his resurrection, ascension, and secession. 
in the heavenly places, the unseen world of spiritual reality in which the principalities and powers operate and in which Christ reigns supreme. There God has blessed his people in Christ. And there he has seated them with Christ. For if we are seated with Christ in the heavens, there can be no doubt what we're sitting on. Ladies and gentlemen, we're sitting on thrones. Amen. Moreover, this talk about solidarity with Christ and his resurrection and exaltation is not a piece of meaningless Christian mysticism. It bears witness to a living experience that Jesus has given us, on the one hand, a new life. On the other, a new victory. We were dead, but have been made spiritually alive and alert. We were in captivity, but have been enthroned. Now, that concludes what God did. But let's go to the next point. Why did God do it? Well, Paul goes beyond a description of God's saving action. He gives us some understanding of his motivation. He says, indeed, the major emphasis of this whole paragraph is that what prompted God to act on our behalf was not something in us some uh, supposed merit, but something in himself. And what was that? His own unmerited faith. Four words to express the origins of God's saving nature. And he writes of God's mercy. He says, God's mercy in verse number four, God's love out of the great love with which he loved us. Verse 4b, of God's grace. By grace you have been saved, verses 5 and 8, and of God's kindness, his kindness towards us in Jesus Christ, found in verse number 7. Ladies and gentlemen, we were dead and so helpless to save ourselves. Only mercy could reach the helpless. For mercy is love for the down and out. We were under God's wrath. Only love could contribute or triumph over wrath. He deserved nothing at God's hand but judgment. You and I deserve nothing at God's hand but judgment on account of our trespasses and sin. Only grace could rescue us from our place, for grace is undeserved favor. So why then did God act? Out of his sheer mercy, love, Grace and kindness, that's why he acted. More than that, he saved us in order that in the coming age we might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. Look at verse number seven. In raising and exalting Christ, he demonstrated the immeasurable greatness of his power. But in raising and exalting us, he displayed also the immeasurable riches of his grace and will continue to do so for his living evidences of his kindness uh, we shall point people away and begin and beyond ourselves to him uh, to whom we owe our salvation. Now look at verse number 8 to, to, through 10. These verses elaborate on God's grace and explain why in the coming ages God will show his grace and kindness toward us in, in Jesus. It's because of our salvation. Uh, I was reading a book by N.T. Wright uh, about uh, Hope's the surprise of hope. 
he said, what is salvation? If you ask a Christian, you know, what is salvation? They would say, I'm going to heaven when I die. But salvation is more than that. Salvation is God's rescue plan. That's salvation. God showed his grace toward us. Sinners worthy of death. That's who we were. Sinners worthy of death. Cause he has saved us by his grace. For by grace you have been saved through faith. Here are three foundational foundations of Christians' good news. Faith and faith. Salvation is forgiveness. forgiveness. It is deliverance. It's rescue. Salvation is rescue from the death, the slavery, and wrath described in verses 1 and 3. Indeed, it includes the totality of our new life in Christ, together with whom we have been made alive, exalted, and seated in the heavenly realm. Grace is God's free and undeserved mercy towards us. And faith is the humble trust with which we receive it for ourselves. So in order to enforce this positive statement that we have been saved by God's grace through trust in Christ, Paul adds two balancing negatives. First, and this is not your own doing, he says, it is the gift of God. Secondly, not because of work, lest any man should boast. Now, again, some theologians have taken the word this in the former of these two negatives and referred to faith. Well, that's not Theologically correct. Theologically, this is true, but we must never think of salvation as a kind of transaction between God and us, in which he contributes grace and we contribute faith. For we were dead. We were dead and had to be quickened before we could believe. Now, watch this. A dead man can't just get up and walk. Lazarus was dead. Y'all remember the story. But when he heard his name. Watch it now. When he heard, he was dead. But when he heard his name, when he heard the words, Lazarus, come forth, he was quickened. We were dead. But when we heard the words, when we heard the good news of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit quickened our mind to accept the word. And we became woke. We rose up and by faith accepted that grace that was extended, saving faith to as God's gracious gift. But nevertheless, Paul is not directly affirming this here because this is neuter, whereas faith is a feminine noun. And we must therefore take this as referring to the whole previous sentence. By grace, you are people who have been saved through faith. And this whole event and experience is God's free gift to you. It's neither your achievement nor a reward for any of your deeds or religion or philosophy. Since there is no room for human error in this, there is no room for human boasting either. Because salvation is God's gift, lest any man should boast. Christians are always uncomfortable in the presence of pride. For they sense its congruity. But we shall not be able to strut around heaven like peacocks, because heaven will be filled with the praises of God. There will be indeed displays in heaven, not self display, 
but rather a display of the incomparable wealth of God's grace, mercy and kindness through Jesus Christ. Now, uh, one may imagine that by now Paul has made his point and he is ready to pass on to another topic, but no, he is determined not to leave the theme until he has expounded it beyond any possibility of misunderstanding. So he adds one more positive, decisive, and glorious affirmation in verse number 10. Watch this. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now, the first emphatic word of the sentence is his. Paul has already declared that salvation is not our achievement. Now he does not just state the opposite, namely that it is God's achievement. He goes further. He leaves behind any thought of salvation as an it or a this outside and apart from ourselves. He is concerned about us, living beings, human beings who were dead. What are we now? We are God's workmanship. We are his masterpiece. We are his artwork created in Jesus Christ. Both Greek words speak of creation. So far, Paul has described salvation in terms of a resurrection from the dead, a liberation from slavery, and a rescue from condemnation. And each declares that the work is God. But dead folk cannot bring themselves to life again, nor can captive and condemned people free themselves. But now Paul puts the matter beyond even the the slightest shadow of a doubt. He says salvation is creation, recreation, or recreation, creation. And creation language is nonsense unless there is a creator. So self-creation is a patent contradiction in terms. Now, paragraph ends as as it begins with our human walk, a Hebrew idiom uh, for our manner of life. Formerly, we walked in trespasses and sin in which the devil had trapped us. Now we walk in good works, which God has eternally planned for us to do. And though the contrast is complete. It is a contrast between two lifestyles, good and bad, evil and good, and behind them, two masters, Satan and God. What could possibly have affected such a change? Just this, a new creation by the grace and power of God. Expression of the paragraph are surely but God and by grace. Finally, Paul was under no illusion about the degradation of mankind. He refused to whitewash the solution or situation, for this might have led him to propose superficial solutions. Instead, he began this paragraph with a faithful portrayal of man subject to three terrible powers, sin, death, and wrath. Yet he refused also to despair because he believed in God. True, the only hope for dead people lies in a resurrection. But then the living God is the God of resurrection. He is even more than that. He is not only the God of resurrection, he is the God of creation. So both metaphors indicate the indispensable necessity of God's divine grace. It's all about grace. For resurrection is out of death. Creation is out of nothing. And that, my friend, is the true meaning of salvation through grace. Thank you for your attention. Stay in God's grip.
Is your congregation in need of lending for a building or expansion project? As your partner and advocate, Diversified Financial Network will take the time to understand your unique situation and develop a financing solution that meets your specific need. It's an exciting time for your congregation, and what you need is a company with expertise in church financing early in the process. Call us today at 1-866-513-6665 or visit us at www.diversifiedfinancegroup.com. These are the announcements for the events and activities in the Churches of Christ. If you'd like to have your events and activities announced on this radio broadcast, please contact me at Stevie B's Media Production Studio at 910-491-6405. Or send your email to my new email address, butlersteve1009 at yahoo.com. Due to the coronavirus pandemic, I will not be making any public announcements until further notice regarding the public meetings and assemblies, but I will be making announcements regarding the events and activities happening on social media. On Thursday at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time and 9 p.m. Central Standard Time and 10 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, there will be a nationwide gospel call that is sponsored by the Church of Christ in Highland Heights from Houston, Texas. And the telephone number to this call is 857-216-6700. And the access code is 328-497. This is a nationwide outreach to those who are not members of the Churches of Christ. And the speakers will be presenting a basic salvation message for them to learn what they must do in order to be saved, as well as information regarding the Churches of Christ. In addition, it's intended to edify and strengthen the faith of those who are Christians. On Tuesday evening at 6.30 p.m. Central Standard Time, the Delcrest Church of Christ from San Antonio, Texas, presents the Women's Virtual Bible Class, and that will be held on Zoom, and the class ID number is 821-3692-8262. Daily at 6 a.m. Central Standard Time, the Ladies in Christ prayer line will be hosted by the Church of Christ from Lafayette, Louisiana. And this telephone number is 605-472-5203. And the access code is 514-859. My co-host Steve Corral on the Gospel Light Radio Show, he has a new book entitled God, Grace, and You. And you can order his book from the 21st Century Christian Catalog. There will be a spring-summer series every fourth Wednesday of the month at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. There will be a preacher's panel discussion joining Minister Michael Crusoe as he moderates a series of discussions featuring seasoned preachers in the Brotherhood of the Churches of Christ. And the topic of discussion will be expanding the role of women in Christian worship, a word from the Lord. On April the 26th, 2021, that's a Monday evening at 7 p.m. on Zoom, there'll be a National Prayer Revival sponsored by the Churches of Christ. And the theme will be, through it all, we pray. And the password on Zoom will be prayer. And just a program reminder, Stephen B's Big Productions presents. We're airing live shows here on Blog Talk Radio. On Tuesdays, I'll be hosting a live show, What a Word from the Lord radio show. And this show will air from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. 
And each week on that broadcast, I have a guest speaker from the Brotherhood of the Church of Christ who will be presenting a lesson from the Word of God. Also, I have a Community Corner segment that's designed for small business owners and entrepreneurs who have products and services for our communities. And I also have three co-hosts on that show, Lou Gilbert from the Easy Evangelist from the Overbook Park Church of Christ there in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And my newest co-host, Shauna Oda, she has the Chief from the Great Way Church of Christ, and she has the Mid-Tennessee Singles Ministry. And we also have the my co-host, Isa Mullis, who serves here in Helen Street Church of Christ here in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And then on Thursday evening, I'm hosting a live show, the Gospel Light Radio Show. This show will air from 6 to 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 to 7 p.m. Central Standard Time. I have eight co-hosts on this show who will be presenting messages from the Word of God. And each week, I have two of my co-hosts on the air with me. I'm also taking questions from my social media platform on Facebook that I'll be posted to one of my co-hosts on this live show. And then on Friday night, I'm hosting a live show at our new time from 9 to 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 8 to 10 p.m. Central Standard Time. I'll be hosting a live show on Stephen B.'s Acapella Gospel Music Blast radio show. Now, this Friday night, there will be no show scheduled for this Friday night. But on this Friday night show, I'm playing some of the world's greatest acapella gospel music artists, the sweet sounds of voices. We're also interviewing artists on the broadcast every first Friday of the month in our Story Glory segment. And also on next Friday night, I'm counting down my top 20 acapella gospel songs for the month of April. We have a new list for the year 2021. Also, my own demand episode, if you can't get any of these live shows, wherever you're getting your favorite podcast from, just go to uh, just search for Stevie B Media Productions and you'll see all of the on demand episodes that we're producing here on a weekly basis. And some of the major platforms that I always like to tell people about are Spotify, Apple, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music and YouTube, just to name a few. If you'd like to be a sponsor for any of these radio shows, just contact my new sponsorship manager, Michelle Marco, from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Her telephone number is 954-687-4705. I'd like to give a shout-out to all of my sponsors. We certainly appreciate everyone who's been sponsoring these radio shows. Sheriff Norwood from Chicago, Illinois, Bethesda Memorial Funeral Director Crematory Services from DeSoto, Texas, and Stanley Phillips from Little Rock, Arkansas, Cheryl Morales from Charlotte, North Carolina, Yvonne Blazing Cracker Duke from Nashville, Tennessee, Melvin Jackson from High Point, North Carolina, Marquise Hallman from Charlotte, North Carolina, Stephanie Booker Wilson from Greensboro, North Carolina, Diversified Financial Network LLC from Dallas, Texas, on his market, Charlotte Carroll, and Ordained Faith Publishing from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The three E's of Stephen P's Media Production is the objective of this broadcast. We want to educate, we want to edify, we want to encourage you in the study of God's Word. And that will conclude our program announcements. Our shout-out question is coming up next. Stay tuned. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Lord, you know I need you.
listening to the gospel light radio show shout it out question ladies and gentlemen this is the portion of the broadcast where i have a question for one of my co-hosts that we're going to be answering that we've taken from our social media platform called shout it out and we want to encourage our listeners to just join that group on social media and get involved in those biblical discussions now my co-host Tim Bench will be answering our question. He's from the Oham Lane Church of Christ there in Abilene, Texas. Tim, how are you doing this evening? Doing well, Stevie. Now, Tim, we have a doozy of a question. Actually, we have three questions that we want you to answer on the show this evening. Now, this question is from an anonymous query from the state of Oklahoma. Now, I think we both know who this question is from. <laughs> we <right>. do, yes. <laughs> All right. Now, the text that's given for this question is Matthew chapter 27, verses 51 through 23. Now, let me read this text first, and then I'll ask you these three questions. The text says, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. And the graves were opened, and many bodies of saints which slept arose and came out of the graves after his resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared unto many. Now, here are the three questions. Number one, please explain the text that I just read. And what did the tearing of the veil in two pieces have to do with the graves being open? Number two, did the graves stay open for three days until Christ resurrected, and then these bodies were resurrected, and did they have to die again? And number three, are there any outside sources of history to verify these bodies resurrected? What say you to these questions? Stevie, this is one of the better sets of questions we've ever had submitted, and my answer is going to be lengthy tonight, so bear with me. In regard to the tearing of the veil, when Jesus died, as we read, the veil was torn, symbolizing that God left that place once and for all, never again to dwell in a temple made with human hands. We can refer to Acts chapter 17, verse 24. God was through with that temple. He was through with the entire religious system, and the temple and the city of Jerusalem were later to be left desolate, destroyed by the Roman army in 70 AD, just as Jesus prophesied in Luke chapter 13, verse 35. And in fact, Stevie, the siege of Jerusalem would make for an excellent special edition topic for this show at some point. As long as the temple stood, it signified the continuation of the old covenant and the old law. Hebrews Chapter 9, verses 8 and 9, refers to the fact that that age was passing away, that age was being ended as the new covenant was being established and ushered in, according to Hebrews 8, verse 13. So, in a sense, the veil was symbolic of Christ himself as only way to the Father, 
Jesus says that in John chapter 14, verse 6. And again, this is indicated by the fact that the high priest had to enter into the Holy of Holies through that same veil. Now, of course, Christ is our high priest, and as believers in him and followers of him and his finished work, we can partake of that better priesthood. We can now enter the Holy of Holies through him. Jesus serves as our bridge, so to speak, to God, not the temple or any priest. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 says, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body. And here we can imagine the image of Jesus' flesh being torn for us just as he was tearing the veil for us. So the significance of this event is explained in great detail in Hebrews. The things of the temple were shadows of things which were to come. And all of those things ultimately point us to Jesus Christ. He was the veil to the Holy of Holies, and through his death, the faithful now have free access to God. So the veil in the temple was a constant, visible, very public reminder that sin renders humanity unfit for the presence of God. And the fact that the sin offering was offered annually and countless other sacrifices repeated daily showed that sin could not truly be atoned for or erased by animal sacrifices. I've read estimates that as many as 30,000 animals per day may have been slaughtered in Jerusalem for that purpose. So Jesus Christ, through his death, has removed that barrier between God and man, and now we can approach him with confidence and with boldness. And again, I would recommend that any listeners uh, check out Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. In answer to question number two and number three, in regard to the resurrection of the dead saints, this is one of the most controversial, debated topics in the entire New Testament and as well as the Bible. I want to share a quotation. This is from Matthew 27, 51 to 54, Revisited, a narratological reappropriation by Raymond Johnson. Quote, This resurrection from the dead has confounded interpreters and led to many crucial interpretive questions. What kind of bodies did these holy people have? Did they die again? How public was their appearance and how many people saw them? Were they raised before or after Jesus' resurrection from the dead? If they were raised before, what did they do after they were raised but before Jesus was resurrected? Did they just wait in their tombs? Was their resurrection like that of Lazarus in John chapter 11? Or was it like the resurrection described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, i.e. glorified bodies? Is it possible that these saints were taken up to heaven like Enoch in Genesis 5 verse 24? Was Matthew speaking of an actual historical event or merely using apocalyptic and metaphorical language here in this gospel narrative, end quote? The answer to all of these questions, we do not know. We don't have specifics, and that's why there is so much controversy and debate about this. To answer the first question of our friend in Oklahoma, there is zero outside 
sources of history or extra-biblical corroboration of this event. There is not one historian. There is not one rabbi. There is not one soldier. No one that we know of ever mentioned the dead walking around in Jerusalem. Not even Flavius Josephus, who would write Antiquities of the Jews, the famous Jewish historian, he, he wouldn't even mention it. Second, why is Matthew the only book in the New Testament to mention this astounding story? Not just the only synoptic gospel which mentions it, it's the only gospel period which mentions it. Mark does not mention this, neither does Luke. And if Mark was written first, as is the well-established view of most all biblical scholars, why was the dead bring, being brought back to life and entering into Jerusalem not mentioned there. And I think this is fascinating, Stevie, and the importance of this is something that we absolutely have to consider. This would have been a momentous event. Uh, Mark did not describe it. Matthew does describe it. Why was this not mentioned by all of the synoptic gospels? And here's another question to consider. If the dead were raised and they entered into the city, would there be anyone even the most orthodox Jew who would not decide to follow Jesus. And I would suggest that it's hard to imagine there being one Jew or one pagan or one non-believer left. Everyone would become a believer on the spot. Now, I am not suggesting, and neither is anyone affiliated with this show, that this event did not happen. The question here, or the answer being provided to the question here is was this event mentioned elsewhere in secular literature or writings or reports? And that answer is an emphatic no. It's, again, not even mentioned elsewhere in the Synoptic Gospels or anywhere else in the New Testament. This is corroborated by very respectable Church of Christ-affiliated scholars. James Burton Kaufman wrote in his commentary, quote, no record is left of the awe and wonder that doubtless accompanied the events connected with so strange and supernatural a phenomenon. Now, let's look at some additional considerations here. Uh, what does the word many you mean in verse 52? If we're going to try to pick this apart and look at the uh, historical underpinnings, what does that word mean? Does it mean a 1,000? Does it mean 500? Does it mean 100 or 20 or a dozen or five? If it was a comparatively small number, could that possibly explain why not one mention of it is made by any contemporary source and even other synoptic writers? We simply don't know what the word many is intended to convey there. This is from Thomas Paine in The Age of Reason, and I think there are some points here worth consideration. Quote, the writer of the book of Matthew should have told us who the saints were that came to life again and went into the city and what became of them afterward and who it was that saw them for he's not hardy enough to say that he saw them himself, whether they came out naked, uh, whether they came out fully dressed, where they got their dress, whether they went to their former habitations, whether they reclaimed their wives, their husbands, their property, how they were received, whether they entered eject ejectments for the recovery of their possessions or brought actions of criminal conduct against the rival uh, opponents, whether they remained on earth, followed their former occupation of preaching or working, whether they died again or went back to their graves alive and buried themselves, end quote. We don't know 
And the, the question that was put to us specifically is, did they have to die again? How long would they live? Again, we are left with far more questions and answers about this story. This is from truthortradition.org. Quote, if many of the Old Testament saints arose and went to Jerusalem, why are they not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament? In fact, the entire event is not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible. This seems incredible if it actually occurred. Are we to believe that many Old Testament saints, such as Joshua, Josiah, Jeremiah, got up from the dead and entered Jerusalem but never joined the apostles? When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he rejoined Jesus and the apostles, end quote. Try to imagine, Stevie, if Moses himself had been raised from the dead and entered into Jerusalem. Again, the most ardent, zealous, dedicated Jew uh, immediately would have embraced Christianity. Uh, from Discover the Book Ministries, quote, we do not know whether these saints had died long ago or only recently. We don't know how long they remained alive. Was this a permanent resurrection? If it was, what happened to them? Were they transported to heaven like Elijah, or did they? We do not even know who they went into Jerusalem to see or why they went or what they said to those that they saw. So, again, this is something that, that is, uh, there are no firm answers for. And, and I, like everyone else, like to have very firm, declarative answers from Scripture, and there just are none. So, again, to answer the question, there is no extra-biblical confirmation of this event. There is no synoptic uh, confirmation of this event. There is no confirmation of this event anywhere else in the Bible. Uh, we have to take this by faith that it occurred and again, there are many, many questions here that we would love to have the answers to that we simply do not. And I think that's the best answer that we can present. And again, I would suggest that we, at some point in the future, do an extended uh, special edition show on this very topic, Stevie. All right, Tim. Thank you for that very thorough answer. Those are some great answers to those questions. Ladies and gentlemen, stay tuned. My co-host Courtney Carruthers is up next. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. When I see the
listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Give your attention to the proclamation of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Now my co-host, Courtney Carruthers, and his subject, Kingdom Culture and Behavior. Um, listening to Dr. Washington and um, Tim, uh, I was switching back and forth and said, wow, um, how he answered the questions regarding um, the prairie in Oklahoma, how he laid it out so well. And then Dr. Um, Washington kind of went into my message tonight, and that's great. Uh, I enjoy both of them. And so I don't want to to go less 
um, than what they did, but I want to build on what they have done. So let me state to you three concerns why this lesson is given. Kingdom culture and behavior. Kingdom culture and behavior. Or the kingdom culture of of behavior. So to those that are listening, there are three reasons. One, the atmosphere of God has purpose. In talking about the purpose in the kingdom of the atmosphere, it is to it is to be an inviting it is to be an inviting um, place where people can come and grow graciously or grow, grow by the grace of God. That invite that in, that inviting place of inspiration to grow in the grace of God is to in, is to encounter one the love of God. However. The love of God is not acceptable outside of the culture, is not acceptable in any other culture, but in the kingdom. So let me explain. I said that the atmosphere is an inviting place to inspire us to grow in the grace of God. And in the growing in the grace of God, we must first grow in our love for God. It is shown in Romans, and if I get time, I'll I'll show this, that God never inquired us to love him without faith. We cannot love God if our faith is not strong. The ultimate reason for faith in the kingdom culture that we're going to look at today is how far will you go to give your life to make someone else's life better. John 3.16, the royal chapter, the royal verse of John says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, so in this thought then, grace is the favors of God in the atmosphere of the kingdom to give life, to make life better, to give life, to live life worthy of God for each other by sacrificing our life. Number two, not only love, but love brings about productivity, and that is we exchange what is deemably encouraging us for us to grow. Outside of the kingdom, we have what is called an an ethic of worldview versus wordview. The worldview of the world is seemingly defined how people grow, learn, and live, and that works to be acceptable for them to be productive. In the worldview, if we are to be productive, we must lay down our life for and give let God be in our life. Worldview by Nat 
states, in paraphrasing, that each of us have our own worldview. But when it's contrasted, contrasted in God's way, we give up what we learn to become better people in the kingdom of God. So why is now? So number two then, concentrating on that, and I'm going to get to the point that I'm, number two is not only love, number one is not only love, but secondly is, is life. Our life in the kingdom cannot be by our own worldview. It has to be through God's view because God's way is higher than the world's, the way of the world. It's a way of saying that we have to be different in our ethics than what the world is. So in the difference of our ethics, Matthew 5, 43 to 47 is going to point out the emphasis of that ethics in the culture of God is to live, is to, is to exemplify love different from the world because that's, who, that's what Christ did. So not only love, but life. The life we have is not cultivated any longer in the kingdom by our worldview, but our life was cultivated and conducted by the example that Christ gives us. So to live in the kingdom, I have to lay aside my opinion, my thought, my upbringing, to, and, and allow room for God's word to cultivate me to live peaceably with God. And so Dr. Washington, in his teaching and his preaching, uh, highlighted that about not so much in the word of ethics, but in, in living right based upon our salvation call out of Ephesians. And that salvation call is not by the works we've done, however, but it's by, it is by the gift of the Holy Spirit, which it comes by grace, and by grace God envelops us into an environment that is suitable for us to grow. And if I love God and I'm giving my life to God and he's controlling my love, which is sacrificing, and he's gifted me to live that way, that I can live, we all, all of us, should I say, can live to the measure that the kingdom culture expects of us. Now, number three, we have what is called members who are in the church, uh-huh, but are not living the culture of the kingdom, all right? We have members that are in the church, but are not living the culture of the kingdom. The church is a community called into the kingdom of God to express the principles of God. And so when people are not living to the principle of the kingdom, but by the principle of church goers and not the gift of the Holy Spirit that comes into the church, this is where we have division. This is where we have disruption. This is where lives are destroyed because God must lead us by the culture of the kingdom so that the community in the kingdom going into the world would not become enemies of an ungodly ethics. Let me explain this then. Matthew 5, 43 to 47 says, Matthew 5, 43 to 47 says, You have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thy enemy. Mm-hmm. But I say unto you, love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. Pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Why? Here's the culture. That ye may be the children of your father, where? Which is in heaven, for he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good and send his rain on the just and on the unjust. Here is the call to have a higher level of love that is different for society. 
Verse 46 says, For if you love them which love you, what, what reward have you? Do not even the publicans the same? And if you salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans do so? Be ye therefore perfect. Here's some aim. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which in heaven is perfect. Let me, uh, for a few minutes, I uh, hope you're still there. Explain to you culture. Um, the quality of a personal society uh, is that arises from a concern for what um, brings about him saying, I'm living right, is based upon his understanding of his culture. We, when we observe culture, whether in organization or society at large, we are observing an involved in an in involved form of social practice that has been influenced by many complex interactions between people, events, situations, actions, and general circumstances. Culture is self-organizing. The word organization simply means a means to an end. The means to an end of any organization is to reach a goal that is that is unified, unifiably satisfactory of the people striving in one purpose to reach the goal. So when we talk about the one church, many times in the Church of Christ, when we are defending the church apologetically, we sometimes would defend it based upon the doctrine against other doctrines, and then other doctrines say, well, other people from other doctrinal churches will say uh, that are not as the Church of Christ will say, well, how can y'all say you're different? We will by we will by franchise marketing strategy or by a market strategy show that we're different based upon us, yes, not using instrumental music, us teaching one Lord, one faith, and one baptism. We show our difference not only by that message but also by the spirit of the God's word that equates that message or makes that message at a, 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 a solid. So we, we say, well, we got the Bible. And having the Bible, we teach that the name of the church, Romans 16, 16, is the church of Christ. Salute one another with the holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. Well, what is the practice of worship in the church? The practice of worship in the church is that we come to sing praise. We don't use instrumental music. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing, and making melody in your heart. So what is the, what is the strategy of the differentiation? That our music is not to sound worldly, but it is to sound like it's from the word that pleases God. The difference in Matthew, Ephesians 5.19 in culture teaching of the kingdom worship is not only to show the world that there is but one church by the differentiation of, 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 of doctrine, of scriptures, and doctrine of nature is this, that Paul was telling the church to sing, but do not allow your singing to be the same as the world. So when people look at the worship, they ought to look at the walk governed by the Spirit of God. Here it is, Dr. Washington, what you said, Ephesians, that we were once trespassers in sin, Ephesians chapter 2. We lived in sin. We were dead in sin. And we 
only came out of that sitting on the right hand of God, sitting equally with each other. We are sitting with each other for the purpose of encouraging a different lifestyle. It should not only be the different lifestyle and the culture of God and means to an end to bring folk to heaven in worship because worship is a daily walk. Praise is a celebration of how God allowed us to walk without stumbling in our salvation. Come on now, yeah. So let me say it this way. Organization simply means that we're following the kingdom of God by the ethics. And the word ethics, the word ethics, come on, the word called ethos. Ethos is a fundamental character or spirit that is cultivated in people. What is my ethos since I've been saved and the middle wall partition been broken down and I'm sitting with brothers who racially are Jewish, who are racially are, are, are Gentiles, who are racially white, who are racially black? What is my ethos now? My ethos is not based on the culture of the worldview I come from, but my ethos is based on the worldview that I've been born into an atmosphere that produces love, practices love, pursue love, lift folk up by love, and don't our world need some love right now? Come on there. And so here we are. Ethos, ethos, ethics is a fundamental character. So in the church, which is a community, the church, which is a nature, is governed by the culture of God that says when there's prejudice, the church brings forth peace. When there is police strife, the church prays for peace. We don't go out and loot and burn down buildings and, 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 and hold hatred, but we pray for our enemies that despitefully use us. Lord, I need some help right now. Here. As I look at this closely then, talking about kingdom, what is he trying, kingdom culture for better behavior? In order for us to have better behavior that is different from the worldview and is cultivated from the worldview, it doesn't start how the preacher acts only. It doesn't start how the elders act. I hear young generation millennials say, I'm looking for a place where there's love, there's peace. People understand me. They don't, the world don't understand me. I need to be Let me tell you, if you're going to live in this world or outside of the church or in the church, you're going to be in an atmosphere and a culture where folk ain't going to love you, but you still got to go to your job and make some money. Likewise, you're going to be in a church where everybody's not a righteous remnant, but a satanic remnant, still got to get to heaven. But God has, listen, God has 10,000 men that have not bowed their feet to Baal. And in that culture where there's evil and darkness and light, Matthew 5, where, where the thought is also penetrated from, he said, let your light so shine that men may see your good works. And the word light, good, means result. We see the works of righteousness resulting in you. He is simply stating, brothers, our see. And, and brother uh, 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 Dr. Washington and brother Tim and Stevie, what he's stating to us, and listen those of us listening, that our world. Let me slow it down here. I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting a spiritual joy. Let me slow this down. The idea here is that our youth, our, since we this pandemic, has been isolated from school, isolated from the college isolated from the church, 
And now they're searching all on Zoom, looking for a place where they can be enriched ethically for God. Let me tell you something. According to the Bible, it is not the responsibility only of the preacher to help in that. But we got to help ourselves to get close to God. So, preacher, then, is that true? How is that true then, preacher? Good question. It is true when we learn the value of repentance. Let's look what your Bible says about repentance. In Matthew chapter 3, 7 through 8, he says, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come, bring forth fruit of repentance. Let me say, I heard a young man tell me at a church that I used to preach for, Brother Chris, you're quoting all of these scriptures, and these folk are still living raggedy lives as a child of God. He said to me, friends and those listening, he said to me, people only get serious about living for God when something devastating happens in their life. He reminded me of Ezekiah. He said, Ezekiah was told that he was going to die and not live. Hezekiah immediately turned his face to the wall and prayed, and God added 15 more years to his life. When I hear about the situation that took place with the false arrest in California, the shooting in Georgia with the man at the restaurant at Wendy's, just now the shooting that, uh, the killing of the young man that was 10 miles from George Floyd's death, what I'm hearing is, what I'm hearing is that people are saying, um, what are we going to do? Let us get close to God. God is not the author of satanic vices but he uses those moments to draw us closer to God, to be in his kingdom. Now, here's the impact. Here's, the, here's, the, here's this holy spiritual impact. If it's your son, your daughter, in that case, and you are a child of God, how do we respond? How do we respond? <laughs> well, if it was my son or daughter, in talking on the subject, I didn't get my subject, so it leads me into it now. There's a thin line between love and hate. <laughs> uh, I say this because, watch, many movies and a song came about the subject, there's a thin line. So as a child of God, I hate what they have done to George, but I cannot hate the one who did it. I hate what was done to the young man just a couple of days ago, but I can't hate the one who, had, who did it. I hate the fact that they're trying to change ways to build up, to, to, to change how we vote as they are doing in Atlanta and also in Texas. I hate that the young black man just taking his trash out was, was falsely arrested, but I can't hate the one who did it. What I can do in an irreversible way is say, well, that's crazy. You know what? God's ways are not our ways. Nor, nor his thoughts are thoughts. We are still called into a kingdom to love the sinner for sin. Because aren't we all sinners? We see it over and over happening in the world. And that lets us know if people are coming out of this kind of world, 
they need to come into the world of God's culture and, and know that they can be loved on a higher degree than what society gives. So let me finish. I, I, don't, I don't want to be too long. I hope I get an opportunity to finish. Uh, uh, go for, well, okay, yeah, so let me do this. Love and hate. Love and hate are seen, are seen as the two most powerful emotions that human can experience. Love and hate are two most powerful emotions that humans can experience. They are called strong emotions. Love and hate are both intense emotions directed to another um, in, re, in regard, in, in ethically speaking, love is reciprocated, just as hate is reciprocated. So in closing, how do I reciprocate love that is different from the world? Well, Paul, Jesus answered this for us. He says this, do not love those who just love you, but love those who hate you. First John chapter 3 says this, mm, very good timely passage. As we get ready to close, First John three fifteen says these, this thought gives us this thought: Whosoever hateth his brother, the Japanese uh, culture states that when a person hates another individual, they have closed out all support. They have they have buried all support for the next for the neighbor. Hate is the murder is the is the stove for baking murder. When you bake murder, you simply say, I don't want you to exist in my life. But it's not a burial. It is a distance that says this. The distance says, I don't want to be around you. Hate says, I don't want to be around you. I don't want to see you. You are, you, are, you are dead to me. But you really don't kill them. You kill them in your mind. God says, raise your level. Raise your level by loving those who hate you. For even the publicans and the Pharisees, I mean, even the Pharisees and Sadducees love just like that. So he's telling us that our righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. My challenge to you as we watch the news, my challenge to you as you strive to grow in the culture of God, my challenge to you is that the progress is not how much scripture we quote, but progress and learning to love immediately at the point where somebody's hating on you. When folk are talking about, well, they, they're doing this, they're doing that, and in Minnesota, they're doing this, in Texas, they're doing this. Christians, we're called to love those who hate us. We're even called to pray for those that despitefully use us. Our world needs prayer. Stevie, I want to close and thank you for this privilege to break bread of, of something that is important, that God wants our ethics to be so effective, our, our, our culture come in as a kingdom growing in, the, in our behavior for God to be so effective that people say, don't you know what they did to you? That it draws them to ask questions so we can evangelize and teach God, saying this is what God expects. So shall we pray? Our Father, which art in heaven, thank you for the ability of Dr. Washington, uh, who gave a good message. Also, Tim, who answered the question very well. We thank you for your man servant who put this uh, important uh, program together every week, every day, so that our world who is seeking in the quicksand of despair, hopelessness, lostness, can be risen by the cross of Jesus. We're praying for the families. 
in our world. We're praying for the families and the churches. We're praying that we'll continue to reach more and more people so that their eyes could see your glory. Their steps towards heaven can be much stronger. And as we make our steps towards heaven stronger, that when we gather together, whether on Zoom or in our building, we can love, not love one another, not by outward extent, but by inward extent. And that is we all have the culture of God's kingdom in our life. Thank you. God bless you. And be blessed among the blessed. Take care. And if you miss me from singing, sing and you can't find me nowhere, nowhere. come on up to glory. glory. I'll be singing the face. Yes, I will. And I know the Lord. He will grieve me. Over yonder. Over on the other shore. The glory. glory, I'll be praising the best. Heard a minister say to see all day long.
You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. Ladies and gentlemen, I want to thank you for tuning into our radio broadcast this evening. We have certainly uh, had a great show tonight. My speakers, Dr. Frank Washington, Courtney Carruthers, they both did an outstanding job. My co-host, Tim Bench, did an excellent job answering those questions on dealing with the resurrection from the anonymous queries from Oklahoma. Ladies and gentlemen, we are just so thrilled to be able to bring you a weekly broadcast. It is our prayer that the lessons that were given on the show have been beneficial to your spiritual lives and your relationship with the Lord has been strengthened because you're not only tuning in this radio show, but you've given yourself over to a study of God's word. I'm your host, Stevie R. Butler, and I want to say on behalf of all of my co-hosts here on the Gospel Light Radio Show, we really do appreciate your love and support for these radio programs. Good night, everybody. God bless you. You're listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show. All joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this that the trying of your faith work in patience. It has to work out. God makes no mistakes.
You've been listening to the Gospel Light Radio Show, episode 226.